folks, I love the epic 80s film American Flyers, watching Kevin Costner with his awesome push broom mustache racing around the Colorado Monument on a bike with down tube shifters in the old hairnet helmet. What's not to love? Well, guess what? You too can live your own version of American Flyers this month at the Tour of the Moon, the iconic sportive that goes to the Colorado Monument. It's the final event of the 2021 Royal Massive Sportive calendar, and it's going on September 25th in Grand Junction. And as you may know, if you are a member of Outside Plus, you get 25% off registration to all Roll Massif events. Outside Plus, again, is our digital membership that includes exclusive content on villainous.com, magazine subscriptions, two free books from VeloPress, a photo package from Finisher Picks, an account with Gaia GPS, training advice from today's plan, and the list goes on and on. You can go to velonews.com forward slash Outside Plus to see the full package. And hey, while you're there, start growing your mustache. We still have four months to go to the Tour of the Moon, and I want to see all of you looking like Costner with an epic mustache showing up at the event this year. Again, velonews.com forward slash outside plus, and you can learn more about the Tour of the Moon by going to rollmassive.com. Okay, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you Tuesday after Veterans Day here at the home office in uh, outside Boulder, Colorado. Where am I? Not going to lie to you, folks. My brain's not operating too sharply today. Had a uh, long weekend with the family. Not a ton of sleep. The two-year-old is uh, yeah, a little cranky weekend. So um, if I'm a little slow or if I refer to races that are not going on right now, um, just chalk it up to dad brain kicking into high gear. Um, Hey, great podcast going on this week. Second half of the show, I have an interview with Lauren Stevens, the national road race champion. Lauren and I linked up a couple weeks ago to talk about a bunch of different topics, like what it means to be an American pro cyclist in 2021. Um, Lauren has also been, I feel like Lauren is probably the best American cyclist to have never been named to an Olympic team. And she uh, discusses what it's like to be passed over and how she has personally dealt with these setbacks and disappointment. And I honestly think that like a lot of us can learn from the mindset that Lauren has taken into some of these situations. So thanks so much to Lauren for coming on the podcast. But before we get to Lauren Stevens, we have oh so much that we need to break down from the Vuelta España because the Vuelta concluded this past weekend and in true Vuelta fashion, delivered thrills and spills and chills and so much controversy, delivered like a year's worth of controversy in one stage. And we are going to break that down with my co-host this week. Coming to us from the man cave, it's Andy Hood. Andy, you survived another Welta. Uh, How are you? How has your decompression process been like coming back to normal life after, you know, circumnavigating Spain? Well, it hasn't actually started yet. All I've been doing is writing about this Miguel Lanjel Lopez story for the last 48 hours, 72 hours. Um, but yeah, you know, the wealth, it was kind of a snooze fest, really. I mean, they were kind of like we talked about this last week, you know, some pretty good daily action, you know, good breakaways, good, good, exciting racing. But man, the GC was kind of just on cruise control with uh, Roglic, really, and Yumo Visma. Really, I mean, chapeau to that team. They delivered, I think, their best uh, Grand Tour victory so far. I mean, the third one in a row for Roglic, you know, chapeau to him and that team. Uh, Sepp Kuss snuck in their eighth place, you know, his best grand tour result really not really not a lot of people really noticing that um of course why why were people not noticing that because the movie star lopez story just blew up for us you know a wonderful gift for journalists and those of us who love a little bit of controversy with their servings of professional cycling going back a few weeks we were talking about how is movie star going to find a way to like muck up their awesome situation or like do something completely insane and crazy or just make some decision, some head scratching decision to snatch defeat from the hands of victory. Now, hey, chapeau to them. They got second place overall with Enric Moss. But this Miguel Angel Lopez situation was so bizarre and uh, it happened stage 20. Movistar comes into stage 20 with Mas second place on GC and Lopez third place on GC. And at some point, uh, Lopez got dropped. He was very upset about the situation. Perhaps there was an order for him to not pull to try and catch back on. 
And he ended up stepping off his bicycle and abandoning the race, uh, much to the chagrin of movie star fans everywhere. There was tons of controversy afterwards. There was like a goofy statement made in his name afterwards where he apologized for what he did. Then there were quotes and reports coming out from people in his camp saying that, um, you know, the truth really hasn't come out there, that he was ordered not to pull to catch back on. And, you know, here we are 72 hours later and we still don't really know what happened. All we know is that Miguel Angel Lopez was in pole position to get third place at the Vuelta España, and then he just bailed out of the race. So, Andy, take us into the reporting that you have done around this and the story itself. What? How? How would you describe this story to the to the good listeners? Well, it's an interesting because in this day and age of twenty four seven coverage, when everything seems to be caught on tape much of what happened in this in this kind of uh implosion uh was not on was not on live tv unfortunately you know with the race broken up in bits there's a couple of motorcycle cameras on course and uh we only heard little bits of it coming across from the, one of the tv reporters on a motorbike you know he doesn't have a, a camera with him because the cameramen are on different motorbikes so one of the tv reporters was saying you know, reporting live on Spanish TV, it's like, hey, Miguel Angel Lopez has just stepped off the bike. And so there were no real images of what happened there. But of course, uh, he, he was there recounting what was happening. And he later actually shot that little video grab with his iPhone of, of Lopez getting into the car while he was on the phone and getting into the back of the Movistar car. But, you know, in brief, I mean, what happened was was Lopez, you know, the, the, the race split up. You know, the, the, this last stage was very hard. You know, the, the, the Vuelta Roadbook is notoriously, I mean, almost hilariously off whack in terms of its course profiles. It's like a little kid drawing with a crayon. So, oh, a little hill here, a little, little mountain there. So, all, all the teams, you know, rely on Velo Viewer because the uh, Vuelta Roadbook and its course profiles are just insanely off, uh, out of, out of uh, relation to what really the course looks like. Um, that's been a complaint from riders from years. Now the technology is catching up that, that, you know, teams do have a better idea of what's coming up ahead of them. So that last final stage, the road stage Saturday, it was designed by Oscar Pereira, the, the 2006 tour winner after Floyd pulled Atlantis and got kicked out of the, out of the tour that year. Uh, you know, very hard climbs. Galicia is just laden with these mountains, not huge, high elevation, but we're talking two, three, 400 vertical meter riddles of very steep climbs. So he just packed in about three or four of these in this final circuit. So it was kind of like a Liege, Baston Liege, but even harder. And, uh, you know, end of the race, Byron Merida and Byron Victorias and Ineos, they were, it was, this was their last chance to try to knock Lopez and Moss off the podium. So those teams, two teams dropped the hammer and there was a split in the bunch and Lopez got caught on the wrong side of it. You could see him covering some moves and then, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you pick that move and then that's that move you don't go with. That's when it splits. And that's kind of what happened. So, you know, it was an accumulation of events that led to this 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 tizzy fit, to this fit of anger, frustration that boiled over to this really dramatic uh, departure from the race. I mean, when is the last time any GC rider pulled out of a race for this kind of circumstances, 20 Ks from the finish line. I mean, this is 20 Ks from the final race. The next day was the time trial the race was over and he decides to go home. Yeah, it's bizarre. I can't, you know, we've seen Rowan Dennis step off his bicycle. He's not a GC threat. We've seen guys get kicked out for fighting. But the last time that a GC rider on the last really hard day did this, I mean, this is sort of unprecedented in modern cycling. And a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. So the split happens. Lopez is caught in the second group. Egon Bernal is back there. And, you know, Bahrain Victorious is driving the front group with all the GC guys up the road. And it sounds like Lopez mounts a chase to catch back on and the, the he's not able to close that gap. Now, the controversy I think that erupts here is in what was being told to him from team management. Do you catch back on? Do you pull to try to catch back on or do you sit back? Because it sounds like there were some reports that came out that said he was actually told by Movistar team management, hey, you know, wait up. Like you're in this group back here don't pull, wait for reinforcements, or like don't drag Egan Bernal all the way back up here. He's a good time trialist. He might be able to leapfrog Enric Moss on that final time trial. But either way, there was like a directive given to him to say, don't pull back on. And, and maybe that added to his frustration or whatever. What do we know about Mo Movistar was telling Moss? Uh, team manager uh, Subio Nzue was actually in that front team car on Saturday. And he spoke to the journalist uh, Sunday 
at the finish line after the time trial and kind of shed some more light on that because when that first came out, that came out from really from within the Lopez camp uh, that was leaked out to the Colombian media that, yeah, Movistar was telling Lopez not to pull. And the, the, the official, the initial assumption there was, well, yeah, we don't want to bring back, uh, we don't want to bring back Bernal and maybe change the dynamic of that, of that front group or perhaps uh, Moss could even get dropped and then they could, you know, get uh, Bahrain and Enios with more numbers in that front group. Because you have to remember that uh, Movistar was down to five riders. They had lost three riders during the course of this race. So they were down to Lopez, Moss, and then three helpers. And uh, But then uh, Inzue in uh, subsequent interviews saying, yeah, we were telling him to not pull this hard because we could see – that Lopez was losing, you know, kind of losing his nerve. He's getting very frustrated, getting very angry that he was pulling so hard that there was a fear that he was going to get popped out of that second group and lose even more time. Because had he finished with that group with Bernal and uh, Kreiswick and De La Cruz were in there, he would have dropped, say, from third to like sixth. Still would have had a very solid finish. But they were afraid that he was pulling so hard and getting so frustrated that he was losing control of the situation. They said don't pull because Rojas, one of the three teammates that were still in the race, is coming up. So ease back, let Rojas come up to help you pull to try to limit those losses. So that's what we're hearing. We're hearing those two stories. And uh, that's like anything. Like he said, she said, who do you believe? And of course, it's been very interesting to see how both countries' media have kind of taken sides in this. You know, the, the Colombians, of course, are all with Lopez. They're all uh, uh, agreeing with his kind of... Uh, reasons why he did what he did because you know Lopez did later apologize and said you know well I, maybe I shouldn't have done that and then whereas the Spanish media you know Movistar's a Spanish team team of uh, Miguel Indurain and Pedro Delgado big you know, Unzue 40 years in Spanish Peloton all the Spanish media you know I've really been piling on Lopez quite heavily and I think that to that to me is the most fascinating part of this is that now you know you have two camps um, you have the model camp and you have the Movistar camp. Yes, they're they are one and the same and that they are a rider on a team. But there's definitely two designated camps putting out their own messaging to their own media to try and garner support. And these two storylines are, you know, have have crystallized in one storyline. You have the plucky Colombian champion who's trying to go for, you know, a podium finish. And he's told that he needs to surrender that for the aid of the team. You know, he's, he's told that he basically needs to um, surrender his own ambitions for the, you know, so that his Spanish teammate can hold on to second place and he doesn't jeopardize it by, you know, dragging Egan Bernal back up there. Then on the other camp, you have the Spanish camp saying, you know, Hey, we have this Spaniard in second place in the Welta. This would be a great, great accomplishment for him. And you have this sort of troublemaker Colombian who got dropped. And, you know, he's like, he's, you know, he's torpedoed his own chances. And now he's just being a little uh, prima donna and stepping off the bicycle. And that's something you don't do. So I, I mean, at this point, when you have two storylines that are this disparate, I don't know if there's any way to repair this relationship. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we had seen, you know, the end of Mal in a movie star kit. Um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like the millions of euros that Movistar pays him may do something to ease the uh, tensions here. But like you said, it's like it's like you're, you're living in two different worlds. There's the Colombian world, which is like, hey, you know, we already have an opinion of Movistar based off of Nairo Quintana's troubles with Unzue and Richard Carapaz's troubles with Unzue. You know, Movistar, they have it out for Colombian riders. And then, you know, you have the Spanish who are saying, oh, another troublemaker Colombian on Movistar going against team orders. I think it's fascinating. And it's just like, you know, it is sort of the drama that this Welta needed to, to get us all engaged. And it happened right at the end. Oh, my gosh. The irony there is that actually Movistar and Zue and its different uh, personifications has been probably the leading world tour team that has helped Colombian and South American cyclists over the last 15 years come across, get into the world tour, get into European racing. I mean, it's been that team that really was the bridge that kind of revived this whole Colombian revival that we've seen and written about over the last 10 years or so. And of course, you know, all the other teams are poaching that, that, that service that really Movistar did, you know, now, you know, Enios is a team loaded with Colombians. A lot of them used to ride on Movistar. And part of that is just money of it. You know, the, the people know how good Colombian writers are and, the, and the, they can pay more than Movistar. There's, an, there's another kind of interesting split here too, 
in kind of the, the public debate on, on social media and kind of a debate within the cycling hardcore racing community, you could say, you know, a lot of people on social media are saying, well, you know, hey, it's obvious that uh, Miguel Angel Lopez has some issues here and, you know, mental health issues. We should not really pile on him too much. He's apologized. He realized, admitted as a mistake. You know, let's all learn from this and move forward. Um, but then there's kind of the old school cycling uh, mentality that says, like, what he did was, you know, a red line that you should never cross in the sense of, you know, it's a team sport. And the entire organization in that team, any team, you know, from the mechanics to the soigneurs to the cooks to the bus drivers to the sport directors, the coaches, nutritionists, all these staffers work for the benefit of the riders. And then the riders ride together as a team to protect the leaders so that they can win and produce the results. And so there's a big kind of circle of trust there. You know, certain teams do it a lot better than maybe Movistar has been able to do over the years. But, you know, there's a big betrayal there that many people see. This is more within the cycling community. The larger public sees it very differently. So it's been interesting to see even how some, you know, people on Twitter have really stepped to the, up to the defense of Lopez, of Lopez, and say, hey, you know, let's give the guy a break, man. It's hard to be a bike racer. These guys have a lot of pressure. But the old school saying, mate, you just let down all of your teammates. You walked away from finishing the Vuelta España 20 k to go. Next day is the time trial. You betrayed everyone in that organization. And, uh, you know, who's going to trust you going forward? Also, I mean, let's think about even sixth place on GC, or maybe he gets up to fifth, there's prize money that comes from that. There's, uh, you know, that's another Palmares that the team can hang on its hat, um, can put towards sponsors. Um, the prize money that's split between the riders, I mean, that's definitely something to think about. Um, yeah, I've been following that debate too, and it's it's interesting because sort of depending on the day, I find myself edging towards either camp where, you know, I wrote some stuff uh, during the Olympics about how, you know, the the pressures that these Olympians feel and how, uh, you know, maybe we need to rethink the way we put pressure on our elite athletes because it has led to, you know, so many mental health issues over the years for a lot of different athletes. Um, But then, then I find myself edging closer towards the old school way sometimes when, you know, you do look at, the statistics that you brought up, you're so close to the finish. And there's so many people in this organization that benefit from you um, just, you know, making it to the finish. And yes, realize that there's a real disappointment here and that this, you know, there's, there's personal ambition that's going to be sacrificed for the greater good of the team. But that's also one of the reasons why you sign up for the team and why you accept your paycheck and why you do your work is that, you know, cycling is in its essence, a team sport, it's not an individual sport. And so, you know, even if the team directive came down to say, sacrifice yourself so that you don't drag Bernal up there because Bernal might leapfrog Moss in that final time trial. I mean, that's actually sound tactics. That's not, that's not a terrible tactic. And if that, you know, puts you in such a, such an angry emotional state that you, you drop out entirely, then boy, you know, that's a tough, maybe there's some sort of self-work that needs to be done by the athlete to like, you know, be able to handle situations like that. Cause we've seen, we've seen athletes in cycling be asked to ride against their personal ambition to help teammates all the time. And it's worked out. I mean, Chris Froome, the 2012 Tour de France. Uh, I remember 2011 Paris-Roubaix when uh, Johan van Sumeren was up the road and Tor Hushoved who was really strong and had some great Roubaix's, was chasing back on with Fabian Cancellara. And the team director was like, hey, man, don't pull. Like, you're just going to bring Cancellara up to Van Summeren, who's your teammate. And he was pissed and he slammed his hand on the handlebars, but he followed orders. You know, that's part of being a professional. I mean, these guys, uh, it's part of the, it's part of the tradition of, of professional cycling and they're professionals. I mean, uh, Lopez, you know, I'm not privy to the salary, but I'm sure it's well in excess of a million dollars a year. Um, you know, those kinds of issues, you know, should be and can be dealt with, uh, you know, away from the race. Um, you know, I think Lopez obviously regrets what happened. You know, maybe there's some more behind the scenes that we still don't know. There's other some other tensions there and frustrations for Lopez personally. I mean, he didn't have a great tour this year. He had to pull out. He hadn't he hadn't actually finished a grand tour. I don't think it's since 2019 or since 2020, of course, when he won the uh, the big climb there at Col de la Lowe's in the 2020 tour. Um, but you know, I mean, just you know, the, the irony here too is the contrast is that just two days before, you know, he had won on Gomoni Tairu. 
you know, the queen stage of the Vuelta. In fact, the Movistar boss, the guy that actually runs the Telefonica Española, the, the telephone company that sponsors the uh, team, you know, the big CEO was up there with the team and Zue was there. They were all cheering uh, Lopez and everyone was getting along just great. And in fact, going into the final weekend, you know, they, they said, you know, Lopez has been great addition to the Movistar. He had signed a two-year contract extension right before the Welta started. Uh, the big buzz today is that uh, they might readdress that contract. And, you know, I don't know how far, you know, I don't know exactly if that contract is totally signed, sealed, and delivered, or if there's some language in a contract that can let Movistar maybe get out of it. But there's some suggestion that uh, Nzue and the team might go back in there and reconsider uh, the future of Lopez on the team. Well, this story isn't done yet, and it will be interesting to see how it unfolds in the next few weeks and also how these different camps try and shape it. Because as we all know now in 2021 media landscape with social media and 24 hour news cycles, like you can shape these narratives. So, you know, whether or not there's more information that trickles out or whether one of the camps tries to shape the merit narrative in a different way will be really interesting to see. But honestly, Hodebi, this is, this is one of our biggest cycling stories of the season, just because up to this point, it, you know, there's been a lot of sort of standard operating procedure in bike races, winners and losers and, you know, surprising performances and this, that, and the other. But it's been a while since we saw a polemica of this sort of, this sort of, of an outlier, uh, really, really hit the season. And so, um, waited right to the end of the, <laughs> of the Welta. Um, what do you make of, you know, first of all, do you have anything? I don't know. Are we, are we done with Mal or is there anything left to say? Yeah, well, I was just going to contrast it to, you know, how riders handle adversity and how people deal with it. I mean, look, with uh, just comparing it, to me, it was striking to compare it to Roglic. You know, here's a guy that just the year before, you know, just talk about disappointment and frustration at that 2020 tour. You know, he was leading you know, yellow jersey man into that final time trial. And, you know, he imploded, you know, how did Roglic handle that situation? You know, he he left with his head held high and he came back last year, you know, won the Vuelta España, did the work, you know, worked with his team, came into the tour this year. He was looking pretty good. He's probably the only guy that was going to really take it to Pogacá. And he crashed out. You know, he didn't give up then. And he went to the Olympics, won the gold medal, went to this Vuelta, and won it for the third straight time. So it's it's kind of like just the, the characters of the people in the peloton. It's so different. That's what makes the sport really interesting, I think, you know, for everyone watching it as well, because you have people from all over the world, different values, different backgrounds, different perspectives on the team and, and how, you know, they're just their general views of the world and how the world is fair and unfair and how you deal with that. And, um, you know, it's just this really striking contrast between Roglic and, and Lopez in this situation. It's kind of like cycling media, Hoodie. I mean, you know, I remember that tantrum you threw at the press buffet the other day, you know, the other year at the tour when they were all out of those shredded carrots that you really like and the jamon was too spicy and, you know, you just stammered and stomped your feet and yelled at some poor French... No, wait a second. No, that, that, that did not happen. Uh, we, we do see strange situations like that in the Tour de France press room as it is also... Uh, a UN of sorts of uh, sweaty, unwashed journalists from around the globe. But I have yet to see anyone pull a mal and sort of throw down their computer in protest. Uh, there's, there's been a few over the years. There's been a few dummy, a few dummy spits over the years. There seems to be less, though. I, I think when they stop giving away the, the free rosé and the presser and the dummy spits, as they call it, gone down. <laughs> We could probably do an entire podcast just on that. Oh, the wacky stuff that we've seen in press rooms over the years, um, especially at the tour press room, where a lot of times the bathroom situation is bad, the air conditioning situation is non-existent, and the press buffet situation is um, anywhere from one star to you know negative stars. Indeed, indeed. Um, what do you make of uh, Roglic's win and its place in history? I think we came in talking about how you know no one had won three in a row since what had us and now Roglic you know has really carved his name in Welta history and all of these Weltas have sort of come on the back of Tour de France disappointments and you know I feel like sometimes the uh, the Welta gets a little bit of an unfair reputation within Grand Tour racing as sort of the least competitive or the least 
well, not least competitive, but it, it's the, the least shiny metal compared to the Tour and the Giro. But when you look now at this trio of Weltas, like they've all been pretty hard fought. They've been very difficult courses. And, um, you know, three hard Weltas and a win is a heck of an accomplishment for this guy. I think it really, uh, we saw kind of a different kind of roguelitch really uh, in this Welta. I mean, the team was just in control start to finish. I mean, Ineos Grenadiers came in with you know, a lot of heavy hitters. It soon became obvious that that maybe Bernal was obviously not at his best. You know, he had suffered from COVID and had some other issues between uh, when he won the Giro going into this Welta. So that was disappointing not to see Bernal. I personally was expecting a lot more from Bernal. And I kind of wonder, you know, I wonder if, you know, what, what this means for Bernal more than Roglic, because Roglic now, you know, he's confirmed his credentials as, I mean, I, I don't know what the stat is, but he hasn't finished, I think, the last non-podium result for Roglic in, in a tour, in a grand tour, was going back to like the 2018 Giro or something like that. So he is established as the one of the riders of reference at grand tour racing. The person that I'm more kind of curious about almost is Bernal. You know, he, he won that Giro this year. You know, really, I thought, you know, he – it could have gone either way. You know, it was against a pretty relatively weak field on paper. And he was kind of really fading there towards the end of that Giro, it seemed like. You know, and then after what happened to him in the 2020 Tour, you know, I asked Bernal one day, I'm like, hey, what do you think about going up against Pogacar next year at the Tour? And he kind of started tap dancing, going, well, you know, he seems like a really nice guy. I haven't really raced against him that much. And he goes, it's not really a guarantee that I'll even be in the Tour next year. There's a lot of other races I could win. So, you know, it's it, that psychological play is a, such an important factor in Grand Tour racing. And now you have, you know, Pogacar, who's just a kid who just crushes everyone. And now you have Roglic, who's kind of the quintessential professional and just really methodical and, you know, hits all those markers and the, the result is deadly. And Bernal, to me, almost seems a little bit lost because he was talking about this whole welter. Oh, it feels great to race without the pressure, without the responsibility. I'm free to attack, free to race the way I like to race. But, you know, he was never a factor even to win a stage or really for this GC. So he's kind of just flooding around doing his own thing. You know, that's not good enough for Enios. I mean, they have a big budget. They want victories. So coming out of this tour, the story I'm more interested in is is what's going to happen to Bernal. If you were to draft Grand Tour GC leaders right now, you would still take Pogacar first. Roglic is a close second, but I would put Bernal a distant third, maybe even a fourth, depending on like who else is strong or, you know, sort of how he's looking. And I think the big question now is, yeah, if you line all three of these guys up with pretty strong teams at the Tour de France, how does it shake out? You know, Roglic versus Pogacar is sort of the big heavyweight battle. I mean, I guess, you know, you could throw Bernal in there as a third, but, you know, he's already talking about, well, there's other races out there besides the Tour. Maybe I go back and win a Giro again. I, you know, maybe he knows it. Maybe he realizes, like, but, you know, compared to these two guys or compared this definitely to Pogacar, I'm just not at that level. Um, I think it, it makes for really compelling racing because, you know, we are still kind of coming out of this Ineos Chris Froome era where there was one guy, you know, and you'd look at the Tour de France and, it, you know, the marquee battle would be like, oh, it's Froome versus. Nairo Quintana and you just sort of in the back in the deepest recesses of your heart you know Nairo Quintana is not going to beat Chris Froome it's really Chris Froome versus an injury or a crash that's what it is but now you know between Pogacar and Roglic it's sort of like now that's a real good battle and yeah it's still sort of injury crash tweak of a you know hamstring muscle whatever could decide things and sway it one way or the other but that's like a really close battle and you know if it's uh carapaz or a bernal or you know someone else we don't know who's on the way up then then that makes it a little bit spicier i mean what do we know about other potential grand tour leaders who are coming up i mean remco doesn't seem like he's there quite yet um it doesn't i don't see anyone stepping up to that next level uh, anytime soon, at least not in 2022. I agree. I mean, uh, you know, Jonas Vingegaard was second, you know, in this in this past tour, you know, the, the Dane on Yumbo. Um, but really it is, it's Rogo and Pogo really going to be dominating the conversation, I think, for the next couple of years. You know, in behind them, you know, who's coming up? There's you know, a couple of younger riders, uh, but they really haven't had a chance to really make their mark, you know, it's kind of a, you know, really prove themselves 
at, uh, at at the tour level, especially. I mean, you know, talk about you know, like Alex Sepkus. You know, he's emerged as one of the best elite climbers in the peloton, but you know, he only got his this this eighth place at the Vuelta was his first top ten in a, in a Grand Tour of his career. And Seppel, I think we turned 27 next week. Um, you know, how much, you know, and, and I was speaking to one of his sport directors during this welt, and they're like, the problem with Sepp is that he's inconsistent. When he's on his day, he's up there with the best climbers in the world. And we've seen him, he won a stage of the tour this year. He was up there at the tour last year with the team. But then even in this Welta, some days he would lose, you know, a couple of minutes on a stage when, you know, if he was still kind of riding for GC, he should still be in there. Um, you know, other young riders coming out. I mean, there's no one really, you know, we're seeing, you know, Jack Hay kind of came up in this Welta, but he's kind of unproven. The Yates brothers, you know, Simon Yates is always banging around. Uh, you know, he won the Welta a few years ago. But he's the only really other guy out there that consistently is, is uh, podium material. In fact, this year's third place for Yates, Simon Yates at the Giro was really, you know, kind of the first confirmation that he could get back to that level since he won that welt in 2018. So, you know, it's so hard to get to the very elite of this kind of pile, right? It's like a pile of ants and they're all piling up on top of each other and there's only room for one at the top and they only stay there for so long. But like right now to me, it just seems like Pogacar, and Roglic are just an entirely different level than everybody else. Well, then, if you look at the results of Grand Tour racing in 2021, it is, I guess, sort of indicative of the times where you have Pogacar winning the biggest race. I think from Grand Tour champions, maybe you put Roglic's Vuelta win up there as number two, and then Bernal winning the Giro. It's sort of like the three best Grand Tour racers won the Grand Tours this year. And if we can look back, you know, 30, 40 years from now, when they look back at the 2021 season, maybe that's how cycling historians will parse it, was the three best guys won the three biggest races. Um, well, Hoodie, I appreciate your insight and all of your reporting um, from the Vuelta, and I'm glad that we saved a juicy story for you right for the end because I, I, this could take us this could take us into world championships it seems like it will I mean what about my days off Fred I haven't had a day off in almost a month oh yeah 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 I'll get to, uh, get back to you on that I'm talking to HR later about that I think maybe just maybe they'll just just pay it pay it twice as much oh there you go I'll take that <laughs> you can read Andrew Hood's reporting on VeloNews.com and again Hannah Hoodie thank you so much for all your work at the Welta okay uh, let's go here from Lauren Stevens, the U.S. Road Champion. Okay, now on the podcast, I am so happy to be joined by Lauren Stevens, the recently crowned U.S. Road Champion. Lauren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Fred, thanks for having me. So we are uh, recording this. It's been six weeks or so since your big win at Road Nationals. And I'm really curious, you know, how long did it take for that accomplishment to really sink in the like the level of that accomplishment? I mean, this is a this is a huge win. And, you know, what was the process like of really sort of accepting that? Yeah, I think it took a while for it to sink in um, because we hopped straight on an airplane after nationals. Like by five o'clock, we were already like in the air headed to Europe. Um, So. The following week, right before the Giro, I got all my new kit. And I think when I received all that new kit, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this has really happened. And now at the Giro, I mean, did the riders treat you any differently? Did the Europeans, you know, or the fans treat you differently? You're in this, you know, American Stars and Stripes jersey. Were you, how did people view you as being the U.S. champion? Yeah, definitely the fans start to view you different. They want your photo and uh, when you're out in your training rides, you also get a lot more reaction. Like, like what's that jersey? And um, But for the riders, um, a lot of congratulations, not really any uh, being treated differently. So, Lauren, the Giro, I mean, it looked amazingly hard this year. Um, the big story with TIBCO, Silicon Valley Bank, is you guys actually had to leave the Giro because you had some covid um, positives in the team. I mean, take me through the process of like learning that you had gotten, you know, had a, had a COVID positive and what it was like to leave the race. Yeah. So after stage seven, um, we found out that another team had had a positive and that we'd all be getting COVID tests following um, our transfer that day. Um, and we had a few girls that had some colds. So definitely were a little nervous about taking those, those tests. And uh, we ended up having one positive on the team. And as a team, we made a decision that it was the right thing to pull the whole team from the race. Cause even though the rest of us were testing negative, um, 
you know, it's just, you just don't want to mess with it. Um, but it was definitely an interesting night because even before, um, after stage seven, like going to bed, we didn't know if we were starting stage eight. So I was like, well, I guess I'll have my bag ready just like I'm going to the race and I'll go down to breakfast. And, um, I woke up to a text message, uh, finding out that we would be pulling out of the race. Um, after that, we all got tested again and, um, still everyone else was negative, but, uh, we were put into a hotel quarantine, um, with very little information, no bikes for a few days. And it was just a very like unknown situation. What's the emotional, mental, emotional fallout from, you know, going from being in this race and you're fighting every day to then just like, you're out of it. Yeah, you know, the last time I did the Giro, it was only seven days. So when I made it through day seven, I was like, all right, this is going to be my first 10-day stage race. And I was really excited to be completing a 10-day stage race. And so that that emotional side of it was pretty difficult to like realize that that was being taken away from me. Um, but you know, we're a team and we stick by each other. And um, although I was disappointed, like I wasn't angry. Um, and it just it's just how things are these days. <laughs> So, Lauren, you know, after you won nationals, I wrote a story and we did an interview and I was looking back and reading about your career and talking to your husband about your career. And, you know, I mean, you have you've been doing this for a long time. Um, Your career has spanned a few different eras in American women's cycling. Um, And really, the last two years, you seem to have just taken this huge step up with last year, you know, Zwift Tour de France and winning some big races, winning the Tour de Lode, um, huge accomplishment. And then this year, U.S. Nationals. And um, when, you, when you look at the success that you've been having over the last couple seasons and place it into context of your entire career, I mean, what do you, what do you attribute that success to? And also just how do you view this, of, you know, this 10, 12-year career? And, and, and now it's like you are attaining these huge heights that you know, I'm sure 10, 12 years ago you thought would never happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely at the highest point in my career right now. And, you know, I've I've been close to it before and then brought back down by injury and um, fought back um, to the top again. And that's what's been the most interesting thing is like just that continuous cycle of like fighting back from injury and never giving up. And um, I think I think Matt mentioned that I was a little stubborn. And I think that would be why that has worked for me. And um, it's really exciting to be back at the top. And um, yeah. Stubborn's one way to put it, but I mean, persist. I mean, like, let's dig into that. Okay. Let's let's unpack that. Okay. I mean, how stubborn? When you think about these experiences with injury, I mean, what were the low lowest lows, and how did you work yourself through that? Yeah, I mean, the lowest lows are the 2017 national championships, actually, when. I, I couldn't even stay with the front group. Like I had a hip injury um, that was really, we hadn't re- been able to diagnose what the issue was. And it ended up that like I had this like, the tissue underneath um, the skin had sheared and like the muscle was separated and it took a long time to diagnose that. So I've had injuries that were like, you know, you break a bone and like, you know what the problem is and it's gonna heal and you have like a time timeline. Or this hip injury was the doctors were like, well, Riding your bike's not going to make it worse. So whatever pain you can handle. And I think that's where my stubbornness comes in. Like, oh, you just told me whatever pain I can handle. So now it's in my hands. And so it was just fighting through that and um, just not being able to pedal my bike some days, but still trying to. (laughs) But, you know, you're a person, you have a college degree. You've had a professional um, background before. You've worked as a teacher. You know, do you have options out there in life? I mean, were you at all thinking about like, you know... I've kicked kick my head around in the sport for a number of years. I've had some good times. I've had some bad. This injury, you know, were you thinking at all about what you might do uh, instead of racing? Yeah, that, you know, in 2000, I can't remember, 2017 or 2018 when I was dealing with the hip injury, like definitely I thought about taking that step back and just, all right, that was it. Like, let's, that was a good run. And, you know, maybe, maybe one day I'll, race again but let's try something different for now but actually you know I can thank Linda Jackson for bringing me back to Tipco because when I was having my injury like I was on silence um, for one year and that team was folding and to get injured on a team that's folding you know you don't know where you're going to go next and I'd been on Tipco Silicon Valley Bank 
for many years, had left for a year, which was you know, a hard and difficult decision. And for Linda Jackson to bring me back, even when I was injured, I wasn't being able to train yet, and she gave me the opportunity. So I guess you could thank her for my success because I think I would have just gone back to teaching and yeah, I'm sure I would have gotten back into bike racing eventually because the injury would have eventually gone away. But, you know, she gave me the opportunity to keep going and keep fighting. Now, Lauren, your career, like I said, has spanned these multiple different generations and eras in American cycling. And the last few years, the era that you found yourself in has been a really interesting one for me to cover, which has been, you know, the rise of gravel, the rise of privateer racers, the rise of, you know, uh, racers who dabble in lots of different disciplines and have individual sponsorships. You've stayed with the, you know, the traditional pro road team thing. Your husband, Matt, has been on the gravel side and sort of done the non-traditional route. Um, I'm curious if you have at all thought about going that route or if you've, you know, what that conversation has been like inside of your head to, to keep with the, you know, the more traditional model of road racing, team, European racing, um, U.S. championships, as opposed to like deviating into uh, other opportunities. Yeah, I really enjoy like the mixture of my schedule. You know, I, like like we said, I just got back from Europe and I was racing the Giro to being here at BWR and um, just having like that diversity in my schedule to where it keeps it exciting and interesting. Um, I'm really enjoying that right now. Like, I don't think I would want to do like 100% gravel or 100% road um, right now. And yeah, keeping that diversity. How have you um, talked to Tibco about the growth of gravel? And, you know, you've, you've raced a number of gravel races and the opportunities there and why you want to do it. Yeah, so gravel kind of used to be like my like secret racing where um, I was going to gravel races and nobody really knew I was going to be there. I think, you know, the gravel wasn't as big in the media at the time, too. So you could kind of sneak into a gravel race and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I won that one. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we realized that this is where sponsors are looking this is where the excitement is this is where the growth is in the sport um and so for a professional team to be able to show that we support also um the fun side the um the new side of, of racing i think it's you know been a big step for the team and i think you know linda saw that she saw that gravel is is where it's at in america and we're an American team and, you know, we race over in Europe, but we're also an American team and we want to support American racing. And this is where American racing is right now. And I think it's interesting because it speaks to a story that I've been following, which is what does it mean to be a professional American cyclist in 2021? You know, there are still people who are following the old road model of like road bike racing, team, contract, you know. And then there's a number of people that are following this new model of individual sponsorships, gravel races, mountain bike races, influencer, Instagram. And, um, you know, you almost seem to have this happy medium where, yes, you're still in the old model with a team-based sponsorship, but you're having the opportunities to go to these different type of events. Yeah, you know, I think I just you just made me think about something because, like, back in, like, 2015, 2016, I was doing track and road. And I got a lot of pushback from that, that I was kind of splitting my time. And I'd made the long list for the 2016 Olympics in both track and road. And there, there's people that you know thought I was making the wrong decision and I ended up making neither Olympic team but I was happy like I enjoyed that like diversity in my schedule like of having both disciplines and and gravels kind of become that other side and um you know it's it's not a right or wrong answer of what a professional athlete is a professional athlete is if you're if you're getting paid to do what to race a bicycle then you're, you're pretty professional and yeah we have UCI professional teams and we have just professional cyclists that they are getting paid to be out here um so there's no right or wrong <laughs> way to define it i guess no and i think it's an exciting evolution of the sport um where 15 20 years ago there was one way to do it factory team you know pro team and now it's sort of like you you know there's i know plenty of professional cyclists in that they earn money from cycling but you know they're not winning races but they are a platform and they have great social media they have a podcast they're influencing a lot of people and 
you know, it's sort of, it's almost like a democratization of what it means to be a pro cyclist. And so I don't know, it's going to be interesting to follow to see how that progression goes in American cycling. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're seeing that evolution in um, what defines a professional. You're seeing that evolution in gravel racing. You know, four or five years ago, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see this depth of a field at a gravel race either. Um, so it's, it's, it's all evolving and changing. So you were on the long team in 2016 for road and track. You were on the long team in 2021 for road. Um, you know, not selected for um, either years. I mean, how, 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 how do you view and how do you wrap your head around, you know, what the Olympics, um, what, is the, what do the Olympics represent for you now? You know, I've never been someone who it's like the Olympics was my dream or it was like that was like the end all be all. So for sure, I had disappointment to not be selected, especially in this last Olympics where I really felt like I had earned my spot um, with my 2020 season, you know, getting multiple top tens in the one day races in the fall. Um, so it definitely hit me hard to not be selected. But bike racing goes on and the Olympics, I think, you know, it's one of those things that it's easy for the outside public to understand, like the non-cyclists where they're like, oh, you're an Olympian, like, oh, I get it, like, and they, it's more important to the outside, the cycling community of what it means to go to the Olympics. And it's kind of cool to have won the national championship because that's also something that the outside public is going to understand that you're like, oh, I'm the national champion. And it's it's nice to get that reassurance too, that you're able just to like say one thing and everyone's like, oh, I get what you do. How did you talk yourself through this last disappointment of not making the team? I mean, you know, anytime that there's a selection process involved that's not automatic qualification, there's going to be opportunities for second guessing, for looking pe- at people who are named to the list and say, you know, I, I did better than that person this race. They did better than me in this race. But, you know, I, I had just as good of uh, an argument to make to be on the team as that other person. I, cannot, I, could, I could think that and assume that, like, the second guessing around that if you, could drive a person crazy. And so I'm curious, how did you, how did you process that? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really second guess the selection. You know, the girls that were selected are all wonderful, strong cyclists. And I, I think none of us have this, like, one standout that's, like, clear that this one should be selected. Um, you know, Chloe had the automatic, but the rest of the riders, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room deciding which one of us should go. And for sure, there's criteria they follow to make that selection. And you just have to trust the, the system. And, you know, I found out two days before Unbound um, that I hadn't been selected um, for the team and I cried. I called a few people to let them know and but then I, I moved on, you know, I was like, gotta brace my bike and I went and won the 100 mile at Unbound and, you know, it's, it's you just, you move on. <laughs> Did you think about arbitrating at all? No, I didn't think about arbitrating. No, that's interesting. I mean, for some people, and I've talked to a lot of cyclists over the years about selection processes for the Olympics and for world's teams and for Pan Am teams and everything like that. And I've talked to cyclists who have arbitrated and I, I get it. I understand it, you know, and I have talked to cyclists who don't and I, I get it. I understand it too. It's sort of an individual decision that everyone has to make at some point. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's no best way to do selection. Um, you know, if we went out and had some trials, you know, you'd be like, well, that person was just good today. Like they've never done anything another day. And like, you know, everyone's always going to have something to say and everyone's just doing the best they can do. (laughs) Same as we are out on the bike. (laughs) What are the biggest differences that you see in the racing dynamics between an event like Belgian waffle ride or some of these big gravel races and what you see in, you know, a, a longer, harder road race? I mean, you know, you don't have the same teamwork in a, in like a true like road race. Um, you know, you show up with six, seven riders at a, a road race and then here it's a lot more individual. It's a lot. I've always said though, it also, also these gravel races are much more comparable to a, a European road race. You know, like tomorrow at BWR, what we're going to see is we're racing into sections. You know, you've got to be at the front when you come into a, a gravel section, which is the same in Europe when you're coming into a, a cobbled climb. It's all about being 
at the front coming into those cobbled climbs and it's another style of racing but this gravel racing is way closer to european racing than any american road races you know this race does things a little bit differently from unbound and some of the other gravel races which um here at bwr there's a women's field and there's a women's start and uh, you know at unbound it is everyone starts together and throw them into the washing machine and what comes of it um which format do you prefer so this will be my first uh well i've done a women's start at crusher in the tusher a, a couple years ago but we actually started in front of the men on that one so the men would catch us um so that was an interesting dynamic but tomorrow will be the first time that i do a start where we start behind them um they are starting all like the men one cat one through four category in front of us so we're gonna end up catching people also so we're gonna end up with some traffic on the gravel sections but this is my first experience of racing and in just a women's field so i'm i'm really interested to see how especially those first you know 25k go before we hit that first gravel section yeah we'll have to catch up afterwards to see which one you preferred because i know at unbound you know you had your strategy set which was like 25 miles in there's double track there's going to be a crash there's going to be a split i am going to get to the front group of men right at that point and you you were right you you totally predicted it that's exactly what happened and then that was the way that the race split and so i don't know what do you what do you what do you anticipate to see yeah so you're still going to see that in the women's field like it's going to be a race into that first gravel section it's going to be you want to be at the very front going into there but being just a women's field you're going to have some where the group's going to come back together where like when we race with the men like you make it with the front men's group and you're gone by the time you come out of that front men's group the next woman's you know five minutes behind you um where we're not going to see that tomorrow we're going to ha- we're going to race into that section and you know maybe three four girls get up the road but now how many more of us get back together and chase those girls down and um it's going to be a totally different race i love it lauren talking to you about a gravel race because it's like we've had conversations over the years about what like swift racing strategies road racing strategies yeah. And the more and more I think about it, it's like, man, you're such a diverse racer. Like, you know, some people get into the sport and they kind of follow the same sort of thing. But I feel like you've been a you've been a very skilled racer at broadening your horizons, looking for opportunities and just sort of following your passion for bike racing into these different um, different areas of racing. It's not a question. Just a kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, why? Why have you done that? I, I mean, I think you hit it. Like, I just I just love bike racing and, and mixing it up. And, you know, I've raced on the track. I've raced crits. I've raced in Europe. I've raced in America. Um, I've raced gravel. I mean, I've done a few mountain bike races. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just love bike racing. Well, Lauren Stevens, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, this is Lauren Stevens, U.S. road champion, gravel racer, Zwift racer track racer mountain occasional mountain bike racer all around competitive cyclist um good luck with the rest of your season